Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. This is one of two episodes where I sit down with the odd couple of basic income here in Canada, Art Eagleton Liberal and Hugh Siegel Conservative. Art is my first guest. He is a former senator recently, but a former minister and member of parliament, former mayor of Toronto, and still one of the leading voices for a basic income here in Canada. Art, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. You have been a longtime advocate for a basic income. You were the founder of the All-Party Anti-Poverty Caucus when you were a senator. Why do you think this is such an important idea? Well, because a lot of people in this country are struggling. A lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Even before COVID-19, half the population was struggling with stress and anxiety over making ends meet, getting enough food on the table, shelter over their head or clothes on their backs for them or, or, or for their families. We've had millions of people in poverty in this country for a long period of time. The social safety net that was designed after World War II, it's broken, it's out of date, it needs to be replaced. On top of that, we have inequality, which has risen considerably in the last three decades. The difference between the rich and the poor, or the ultra-rich and the rest, or the 1% and the 99%, however you want to look at it, there has been a focus of wealth and a focus of income in higher income brackets. And a lot of people in service jobs, low paying jobs are struggling. On top of that, there's an accelerated automation going on in our society with artificial intelligence. All of that was before COVID-19. COVID-19 has made it a lot worse. And I think it's an opportunity to redesign the social safety net in this country. I think the answer, to a great extent, particularly on the income security aspect of it, is, in fact, a basic income. There were over 50 senators who recently called for a similar idea, a crisis minimum income. That's a significant number of parliamentarians calling for such an expansive idea. How involved were you in, in the course of that letter and that call coming together? What makes it even more remarkable, just picking up on what you said, is the fact that these are all independent senators. They're not uh, necessarily members of the Liberal Party or contributors to the Liberal Party. In fact, they're, they're there strictly to be in an independent role. And half the Senate coming to this conclusion that this is a route to take, I think, is a, is a remarkable move. They did consult me, and they consulted my uh, longtime friend and uh, colleague in these issues, uh, Hugh Siegel. Hugh and I, in fact, wrote an op-ed piece in support of their position. I'd like to think that we contributed to uh, their uh, decision. And so we understand what we're talking about here. When, when we talk about a basic income, we don't mean a check to everyone. We are talking a negative income tax. Is that right? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Now, you know, there are other people that have different designs in mind. Uh, when the term universal basic income comes up, what that seems to imply, at least in the United States when they talk about it, is that everybody would get it, rich and poor. And those of the higher income, you would tax it back. Well, except that those of higher income managed to keep their tax contributions down to the lowest possible level. So I don't know how much of that actually gets taxed back. But the, the kind of program I support is targeted. Targeted at the people who need it. Targeted at people who have low income, who haven't got enough money to buy the basic necessities of life. There's a lot of people on social assistance, on, on uh, disability uh, programs that are way below the poverty level. Those people need to be helped. 
but also half of the people below the poverty line in this country actually do have jobs. But the problem is they can't make a decent living from those jobs. They don't get a living wage from them. Some of them are doing two or three jobs, still struggle to make ends meet. I think we need to target what we do at those people. And you do that by a negative income tax, which means that if you're not earning enough money to, to get to the poverty line, you get topped up to the poverty line. Give these people a new platform to move forward on in terms of meeting their needs in life by starting with the basic necessities, which are a human right. They're in the, the Human Rights Declaration of the United Nations. A decent standard of living is a human right. And on the details, we are talking about a negative income tax with thresholds akin to the Ontario basic income pilot, or would you see different thresholds? The ultimate aim is to get people up to at least the poverty line, get them out of poverty or prevent them from getting into poverty. Now, there are different measurements uh, for poverty, and the, the, the federal government is currently latched onto the market basket measurement system, but it's not perfect. It's got some holes in it and some flaws in it that, that need to be corrected. But the first thing you do is decide where is that line that you're going to try to, to meet. Uh, in the Ontario basic income pilot, it was 75% of what is called a low-income measure, which is one of the uh, measurements uh, for poverty whether it's a provincial government, a federal government, or a combination of the governments, they'll have to determine what line they want to get people up. And the important thing is to make sure that what you're doing is topping people up so that they can get the basic necessities of life. And so we put the system in place that says, here's a minimum threshold that no one will fall below. And as people earn, there is, as a negative income tax, it's taxed back and taxed back increasingly as people earn more. So there isn't a disincentive to work in the way that we, to some extent, see with the CERB at the moment, where there isn't that gradual tax back. Do you have a sense of how much such a program would cost and, and how we would go about paying for it? First of all, in the first part of what you said, anybody who uh, gets a top up as a result of a negative income tax, of course, the amount of income tax they pay is, is a key uh, factor in this. And if they, if they get a job over and above uh, that, uh, then there begins to be a clawback. Just like with the OAS, it starts to claw back at a certain level and gradually over time until you get to a level where you don't get any of that. So if people on top of start off by needing a top up, but then somewhere down the line, they help move themselves into a a better job uh, through re retraining or whatever, they start earning more money. Well, then of course, gradually they would come off, it, but not too fast because you don't want people to, to feel that they have to depend upon it as people are now trapped in the social welfare system that we have now. So what will it cost? Well, uh, there've been all sorts of estimates and all sorts of studies done on this, but the one I, I, I think is the most credible, and it was based on the Ontario pilot numbers and, and uh, purposes, and it uh, came from the Parliamentary Budget Office, Independent Office of, Par of the Parliament of Canada, as you know. They indicated, well, when you net it out, it would cost the federal government, if it was running it, about $44 billion a year. But then if you take off what the provincial contribution into welfare and disability allowances, social assistance across the country, uh, you bring it down to about uh, 22, 25 uh, billion dollars a year, and we've had all sorts of estimates, which, indicate, which indicates the cost of poverty itself uh, to the public purse is over 30 billion, and some people even have higher numbers than that. So it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it just just as a couple of examples, uh, people in who are low income, who are in poverty, use twice the amount of the healthcare system, billions and billions of dollars in the healthcare system. 
if they're better off, then they, they wouldn't have quite, if they're better nutrition, able to afford their medicines, then they wouldn't be quite as much cost. That's just one example. Also homelessness, it costs more to leave somebody on the street than it does to give them a, a home with a key to a door and, a, and, and support services. There's been a lot of studies that have indicated that a good business case that can be made for, for giving those people housing as opposed to leaving them on the street. So at the end of the day, it wouldn't cost us any more. There'd be some transition costs while you're changing systems, but I think it'd be far more effective and efficient. The current system is definitely broken. It definitely needs to be replaced. And with respect to paying for it, you make a, a good argument that the savings down the road, if we're able to end poverty as we should, that the savings down the road in whether it is health, we talk about the social determinants of health, whether it is in our criminal justice system, there is some time between when we would implement a program and when there would be the recovery of those costs. In terms of an upfront basis, assuming the federal government outside of a pandemic is unwilling to add 20 to $30 billion to go further into what is an increasing deficit. Are you partial to some tax measures over others? You talked about inequality before. Would you support a wealth tax or would you support increasing the GST by a couple of ticks? Are there particular measures you've looked at that you would be particularly supportive of? Well, I think there are choices in there and I'm comfortable with any of the choices you made or, or suggestions you made just a moment ago, but we have not examined our tax system in a thorough fashion for 50 years. It's time that we did a, an examination of our, our tax system. The Carter Commission back in the uh, 60s, 70s was the, the last time we did it. It's time to uh, go through it again and try to make it more progressive and better balanced. There are, for example, $100 billion in tax uh, expenditures or what we would call tax credits that people can take. And most of them are taken advantage of by people in higher income brackets than lower income brackets. So I think we need a little bit better balancing. So if we went through the taxation system, I think we could find a better balance. A wealth tax, a tax on largest states could be another possibility. People have talked about a financial tax. Andrew Coyne of uh, the Globe and Mail said, you know, if we added two or 3% uh, onto the GST, that would be enough to eliminate poverty. And he thought that that would be worth it. In fact, the GST is now 5% uh, of the portion of the uh, HST. It used to be 7%. So if you went back to where it was a few years ago before Mr. Harper changed it, then you'd be, you'd be gaining a, a very substantial, uh, most of the money that you'd need to get this program up and operating. So there's a whole uh, lot of different ways that can be looked at to, uh, to provide the funds on an interim basis. But ultimately, I think the benefit from this will pay dividends down the line, and it will not be more expensive. It will be more efficient and effective. Not only the right thing to do as a matter of social justice, but also the smart thing to do as a matter of responsible fiscal spending. I guess what started me on this was social justice. Even before I was convinced about uh, basic income, I felt we needed to overhaul the social security system. Uh, you know, in this rich country of Canada, people not having enough food on the table, not able, able to pay their rent is it, just disgraceful. I felt there needed to be a solution there. And gradually I came on to that. Hugh Siegel was a big influence with me. Gradually I came on to uh, supporting uh, a basic income as a means of, of accomplishing that. So. So social justice is where I started from. But you know what? A lot of people are not convinced, still not convinced, that this is the right formula, that it might cost too much, that people may not may quit their jobs and, and, and just live on it. Uh, I don't believe that. 
And so I guess I spend a lot of time now talking about the economics to try to help convince people that really this is a sound thing to do. And of course, it also does bring social justice. I'm constantly drawn to policies where there are different starting points potentially as a matter of ideology, but people land in the same place. And, and I do think basic income is one of those policies. You mentioned Senator Siegel as obviously someone of a rather different ideology in terms of party affiliation, and yet you have both long advocated for a basic income. How did you, was it Hugh that led you to the idea, or, or did you land on it before and then ultimately collaborate? Well, I, I'd heard about it uh, some time ago. The Donald McDonald Commission back, when was that, the 70s, I guess, first put the notion on the table of a basic income. Even before that, Mark Lalonde, who was a minister in uh, Pierre Trudeau's cabinet, helped to sponsor a uh, pilot project in, in Manitoba called Mincom. And uh, so there, it, it kept surfacing here and there. But as I said, I originally got into this, I was concerned about trying to end poverty. And uh, Hugh and I came together on the Social Affairs Committee of the Senate, and I was the chair, and I set up a subcommittee uh, to deal with uh, poverty, housing, and homelessness. And he was the vice chair of that. So he and I worked together. We, we got a lot of input over a two-year period of time. Uh, and when we wrote our report, uh, one of the things we said is that basic income needed to be looked at a lot more carefully. And we asked the government, the conservative government at the time, to, to do that. Now, of course, you uh, was a conservative senator. Uh, I was a liberal senator. Uh, but we both know people of all of the political parties who think this uh, makes sense. You are, in many respects, the, sort of the odd couple of Canadian politics <laughs> because it's it's not just that you believe in the same thing coming from different backgrounds and different parties, but that you have worked so closely together. You mentioned writing an op-ed recently. Listen, for my opinion, Hugh Siegel is an outstanding Canadian, is, is uh, what we typically would call a red Tory. And... Uh, so I think he is very strongly in favor of, of ending poverty and finding a new way of doing it. And so it wasn't any trouble for us to work together. It's harder to find red Tories these days. <laughs> for sure. You've been mayor, you've been minister, you've been a member of parliament, you've been a senator. It's kind of unreal to think that you've held all of these positions. What's the best job you've had? Out of, and maybe it's not even of those four. I don't know. Maybe you've had a better job. Well, I spent 45, before that I was an accountant, but I spent 45 years in uh, public office and I enjoyed every, uh, every position I was in. <laughs> not every moment of every position. <laughs> in politics, you never know what's around the corner at times. But nevertheless, I, I enjoyed them all. Uh, but, you know, I must admit, there's nothing like being mayor of your own city. I was born and raised here, and so it was a great honor to, to become a mayor of Toronto. And I, I think one of the things I'm most proud of during my time, and I won't say it, all the credit comes my way for this, uh, but uh, we built more affordable housing in Toronto in my period as mayor than any other period in the, in the history of the city. We had the right combination of uh, people, money flowing from the federal government. This was uh, back in the in the 80s, and so we were able to produce a lot. It's frustrating in many ways as a resident of Toronto to see the slow pace of housing being built today. And when you speak to some developers who used to work in this space in the 80s, they say it was far easier then to get the federal funds flowing and to get to work. And, and it's not even just a, 
that federal funds aren't flowing now. It's just there are so many, in some cases, bureaucratic steps in the way of just getting getting things built. Well, you've got three orders of government that uh, come into play here because uh, the province has to, to, to put up its money as well. Uh, and it has been slower. I, I, we, we do need to be able to develop faster. I'm glad to see that they're talking about prefab homes. In fact, uh, might be getting some people who are homeless into housing. And, uh, you know, uh, again, using that term crisis out of opportunity, we have a lot of homeless people that need to be able to distance from other people to avoid COVID. And yet, and yet for people that are homeless, going to one of our shelters is not an experience of physical distancing at all. So maybe this will give us an opportunity to, to do uh, a lot more than that uh, and, and to get those people better housed. Again, you know what? The thing about either housing the homeless or giving people a basic income is all about giving people a lift up uh, so they can get out of uh, the conditions that they're in. They can get onto a better life because if uh, if you give them that, then you give them uh, an incentive to to look at further opportunities. And people don't, by and large, want to have just the basic necessities. They want to have a little bit more than that. Basic necessities, a top up through a negative income tax uh, to to a basic income. It's not going to give you the good life, but it will make sure you've got a better platform to move off from. And to and, and this is what the Ontario Pilot Project proved, uh, because there was a lot of comments that came from people that said, oh, I'm finally getting out of debt. I'm getting myself on my feet. I'm able to buy more nourishing foods. I'm able to take a course at school that'll help advance me into a new career where I'll be able to lift myself up even higher. This is what we heard out of the Ontario pilot. And out of the MinCom experience that I mentioned earlier that was back in Manitoba, people weren't quitting their jobs. They, they were using it a way of advancing themselves uh, further. And I think that's one of the beauties that will pay off in a basic income uh, program. There might be the odd person who'll say, well, I'll live on just the basic uh, stuff, uh, that top up for some period of time. But they they could also do other useful things, contributions to as a volunteer in society or or just a volunteer to help a member of the family who may be ill. Or as an artist who wants to spend some time developing their craft or as an entrepreneur that wants to start their business. There are all sorts of ways that if you gave people a little bit of creative space and time to be creative, they who knows what, what, the, what they'll come up with. Yeah, I think the pilot projects that have been already conducted, the MinCom one in the 70s in Manitoba, the aborted Ontario one, uh, and ones that have been done in the United States uh, and other locations show that it does, in fact, give people a lift up and it helps them get out of the poverty trap. And at the same time, they want to do more than just that. Uh, I mean, the, the work ethic is still strong in our society. And I think people want to try to earn a little bit more to improve the life of their family. And, uh, you know, we, we just have to convince people that this is something that's affordable. It's something that doesn't result in people lazing around and, and uh, quitting jobs. Uh, and uh, it's for everybody's advantage to give them a better platform and reduce the stress and anxiety and living, of living paycheck to paycheck. You've been in public office, you said, for 45 years. So you have some political acumen, to put it, put, to put it lightly. What do you think 
the obstacle is to getting this done? Why, if, if the evidence is there that poverty costs more than the dollars it would take to prevent poverty in the first place, if you have Hugh Siegel from the Conservatives and yourself from the Liberals, and obviously I've seen members like Yves Caron from the NDP calling for this, yeah. there seems to be a broad level of support from different members from different parties. Is it that people just don't, they're, they're skeptical of giving people free money, even though we do this through OAS, GIS, the Canchal Benefit, the GST tax credit? What, what do you think the political obstacle is to getting this done? Well, I, I think there is some skepticism out there. They look upon this as being something for nothing. Uh, or a waste of money. Well, what we're doing now is a waste of money. You are pouring billions and billions of dollars into a social support system that leaves people in poverty, trapped in poverty. Uh, even people that have jobs trapped in poverty. Uh, so that doesn't make sense. But uh, but some people have the notion that it's either too expensive or it will uh, discourage people from keeping jobs or getting jobs. I don't think that's the case at all. And I think that can be proven. That's why I think a pilot project in our contemporary days somewhere in this country can help uh, prove all of those things. Because I, I think we need to win people over. We need to, to, to win the public over to support basic income. And then that will help to create the political will. And it's going to take more than just the people in low income, low paying jobs. It's going to take the middle class folks as well, because they're the strongest voting cohort in the country. And then along with the seniors. So we need to, we need to convince people that this is the route to take. And they need to, in turn, convince the politicians. There needs to be political will created here. This, I think, is a good opportunity to do it while we're in this crisis situation. And uh, we've got something close to it through the CERB, but, it, but even it is more expensive than anything we're talking about for basic income. Right, because it's not ultimately subject to the same clawback through a negative income tax. No, it's not topping people up to the poverty line. It, it, what it's, it's doing, it's helping people that have lost their job, even middle-income people that have lost their job. From the time that you started to take up the cause, have you seen more people come on side? Have you seen that the political will may not be there exactly today, but that it is growing? Yeah, I, I think it is, although it, it, it waves in and out uh, at times. But there certainly is more interest in the subject now. Globe Mail had a big spread in its opinion section on Saturday about this whole matter uh, because there is uh, a lot more talk about basic income. Another thing, though, that I, I, I find concerning is uh, the use of the term universal basic income. If we're saying universal, if you're in need of it and you're living below the poverty line, yes, I, I think that's a fair way to use that phrase. But too many people think of universal, meaning uh, everybody gets it. And I think that's a, a, a knock to getting public support, because I don't think the public supports rich people getting basic income, uh, even if you can tax it back. I don't think they support that, and I could understand that. So I think we have to be careful about the design of the program. But I think there is a greater interest in it. In fact, the last three policy conventions of the Liberal Party of Canada all had in their top 10 resolutions uh, a resolution about basic income, either directly to implement it or to at least do a pilot project. And when I was in the Senate, we passed a motion that the federal government should work with the provinces in creating the pilot projects that are going to convince people that this can really work, as people like myself are saying. Well, as we discussed, we now have over 50 senators calling for the same thing. I'm certainly not alone in the House of Commons thinking it's a good idea. So I hope together we can build the political will. I mean, obviously, as the recession continues for some time, the cost of a basic income 
would be over and above the 20 to $30 billion estimated by the PBO. But regardless, when the economy does return, return to some sense of normalcy, if that is the cost of ending poverty, that is less than 10% of federal spending. And surely we should be willing to end poverty if it costs us less, less than 10% of what, of what we're currently spending as a federal government. Yeah, well, and I agree. And I, I, I just, again, reiterate that to give people a better platform to move on with their lives uh, so they don't have to worry about whether they got enough food on the table or can pay their rent, then uh, you've got people that are going to try to move forward. Most, oh yes, there'll always be exceptions, but most people are going to try to move forward in their lives and, and better themselves through education or retraining or whatever. Well, thanks, Art. I really appreciate your beginning the all-party anti-poverty caucus as well. The basic income conversation is one that we will continue in the course of that caucus going forward. And with so many senators on side, I think there is a real opportunity to work together as both chambers to, to continue to push the issue. So I really appreciate that advocacy as well. Glad to hear that. Thanks for joining us. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes, including another episode on basic income with former conservative Senator Hugh Siegel and recent author of Bootstraps Need Boots, One Tory's Lonely Fight to End Poverty in Canada.